Good morning, McIver Church. You are welcome in this space, in this space where we praise the Lord together and where we worship together. And um, Jesus, we invite you here in our hearts and in this space, and uh, let's worship you. Good morning. This is Pastor Denver greeting you and welcoming you to McIver Church. Obviously, that greeting and welcome is fairly different this morning as this is a unique Sunday for our church family in the same way that this has been a unique 
week, to say the least. We've all heard the mounting concerns regarding the COVID-19 virus, and we want to make sure we are doing our part to have a thoughtful and faithful response. McIver Church leadership has felt that the wisest course of action is to suspend holding Sunday worship gatherings and open program events in the season ahead. But that does not mean that worship is put on hold in our lives. No, this is a crucial season for us to continue bringing our hearts before the Lord. And that does not mean that our bonds of community are weakened. Even as we participate in social distancing, let us find creative ways to keep connection and to build each other up in love. One expression of this is having our services posted online in the coming weeks. And we're glad to have you participating with us today. We want to encourage you and others you might also invite to keep on returning to our site, mckiverchurch.com, and our social media pages as a hub for encouragement and hope in this season. This morning we continue in our series that we've called Terms and Conditions, the fine print of following Jesus. While we have all had our heads spinning these last few days Let's remember that this is also the season of Lent. We are following Jesus, following him in the way of the cross. We've been learning about the way of discipleship in the book of Luke, but this morning I thought it would be appropriate to jump ahead in the story just a little bit. And so we skip ahead a few pages to chapter 24, which is the end of Luke's gospel. In this scene, the disciples are shell-shocked. They have just had the rug pulled out from under them. The world they thought they knew had been shaken to its foundations. Yet they were still together, and they continued walking. Without even realizing God was there among them, they heard this question, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They responded indignantly, Do you not know the things that have happened here in these days? But right into the midst of their despair and disenchantment, Jesus revealed himself and announced the hope of heaven. Let's hear his words spoken into our hearts this morning. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. So let's pray in this way. Jesus, today, right where we are, may your presence be revealed in our lives. Give us the grace to come honestly before you with all of our doubts and our disillusionment. You already know all of what lies in our hearts. You know the actions of our hands and the steps of our feet. You know how easily we are distracted. But right now you call to us, look at my hands and my feet. As we set our eyes on you, We see the God who has been pierced with the pain of this world. The God who has given up his own life because of the love he has for his creation. And the God who has overcome every enemy. Lord Jesus, speak your peace into our hearts and fix our eyes on you. Amen. Let us continue to worship our risen Lord here this morning. Faithful you have been, and 
faithful you will be. You pledge yourself to me, and it's why I sing your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my lips, your praise will ever be on my lips, ever be on my
morning. It's Pastor Kim here. There are 14 of us in the sanctuary, and although it feels different, we are still a church family worshiping together, and so we want to just include and invite you in that worship wherever you are this morning. Before we spend some time in prayer, I do want to mention a couple of things. First of all, our prayer time is usually followed by receiving your offering. Since we are having church electronically this morning, we want to encourage you to also consider sending your offering electronically. You can give through our website or also through texting, and of course all of that information can be found on our website. As a community care pastor, I want to share some things with you about caregiving during this challenging time. The leadership at McIver is taking its cues from the health and government professionals as well as Manitoba Um, Mennonite Brethren Conference recommendations. We are not reacting out of fear, but rather we feel that the measures we have taken are responsible actions. We want to do our part to flatten the curve as we hear on the news. That is to try and live and move in such a way that the COVID-19 virus won't spread as quickly as it could. Our church family is a caring faith community. I see and hear about many acts of caregiving that take place on a regular basis, and I know that this is a church family that looks out for one another. I realize that this is a strange time in the world. You may be feeling some confusion about what to do, or maybe some fear or anxiety. While caregiving is going to look different in this season, it will nevertheless continue. There may be both spiritual and physical needs among us, Face-to-face visitation will be limited, but I do want to encourage you to contact myself or the church office if you have some care needs, and we will do our best to respond. If you are feeling anxious or lonely, let us know, and someone will call you and chat with you and pray with you over the phone. If you have some physical or practical needs, let us know, and we'll see what we can do. My contact information is on the website, as is the office contact information. You are also welcome to email any prayer requests that you may have during this difficult time. But I also want to encourage all of us to consider how we can care for one another. If you find yourself wondering how someone might be doing, why not give them a phone call? Let them know you're thinking about them and ask how they're doing. We can send notes via email, and of course, let's pray for one another. It will be natural for some people to feel isolated at this time. If you find yourself feeling isolated, please reach out to someone with a call or an email. As we become aware of any physical or practical needs, we will respond as we are able to. And at this time, let's remember that the church is not a building. It is the people. And we want to care for each other as Jesus calls and enables us to. As I mentioned earlier, the staff and leadership of McIver are making our decisions on how to act from the instructions of the health and government professionals who have knowledge and information about the virus. 
We are not reacting out of fear, but rather we feel we are being responsible and doing what we are being advised to do in hopes that our actions will help to flatten the curve. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. During any trying time, our faith calls us to lean on God and trust in him, and we encourage everyone to do this. Let's pray. Have mercy on us, O God. Have mercy. We look to you for protection, and we will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. We cry out to you, God Most High, knowing that you will fulfill your purpose for us. Our hearts are confident in you, O God. Our hearts are confident. No wonder we can sing your praises. We will thank you, Lord, among all the people. We will sing your praises among the nations, for your unfailing love is as high as the heavens, and your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens, and may your glory shine over all the earth. God, in these uncertain times, we know that you are unchanging. We know that your great love for humanity remains that your love is unfailing and unending. Lord, where people are anxious, we pray for inner peace. Where people are sick, we pray that your healing hand would be upon them. Lord, we pray that your followers would be faithful, faithful in loving others, faithful in showing kindness and generosity, faithful in trusting in you. God, we pray for our government. Give them wisdom for the tough decisions they must make, and may they turn to you as they wrestle with their great responsibilities. We pray, too, for the health professionals. Give them strength when they are weary, grace as they interact with people, many of whom will likely be difficult. Keep them safe from contracting the virus, we pray. God, we pray for the researchers who are looking for answers and treatments. Give them wisdom and help them to see what they need to see and understand what they need to understand. God, we know that a crisis of this kind brings out the best and the worst in people. May your followers live and act in ways that bring glory and honor to you and point people to you. We know, too, that you bring good in all things to those that love you, and we trust that you are walking with us in this crisis. Our hearts are confident in you, O God, Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens, and may your glory shine over all the earth. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 12, uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. Meanwhile, the crowds grew until thousands were milling about and stepping on each other. Jesus turned first to his disciples and warned them, Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. The time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed, and all that is secret will be made known to all. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. Dear friends, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do any more to you after that. But I tell you whom to fear. Fear God, who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. What is the price of five sparrows? Two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them, and the very hairs on your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. I tell you the truth. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, the Son of Man will also acknowledge in the presence of God's angels. But anyone who denies me here on earth will be denied before God's angels. Anyone who speaks against the Son of Man can be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemies the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when you are brought to trial in the synagogues, And before rulers and authorities, don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. 
the word of the Lord. This morning, there will be three of us, Theo Dick, Mia Gunther, and myself, Denver Wilson, preaching on this passage from Luke chapter 12. And it's important to realize that this passage, this theme, was actually selected months ago. And now, given the events of this past week, we look at it somewhat differently. But as we're in this series on the terms and conditions of following Jesus, let's realize that this call on our lives is not, first and foremost, about external appearances. It actually goes beneath the surface to the deep spaces of our lives. Within today's passage, we see Jesus teaching in a mixed crowd of Pharisees and disciples, but addressing each person in the areas of shame, fear, and worry. Theodek here. One of the themes that has always jumped out at me in this text, and others that are like it, is that Jesus warns people against hypocrisy and instead counsels integrity. Hypocrisy is, to me, an interesting word. Today we use it to mean a person who says or looks like one thing, but is actually something else. But the word hypocrisy was first used to mean this by Jesus himself. Prior to Jesus, the word hypocrite didn't have the moral content that we give it today. Instead, the word hypocrite meant an actor who wore a mask and performed a role in a theater production. Jesus' use of the word hypocrite is very clearly meant to label people whose goodness and holiness and righteousness is a performance done while wearing a sort of mask, and who then do not practice these things when the mask comes off and they believe that they are off stage. In the previous chapter, in Luke 11, Jesus rips into these people, saying that they are careful to give a tenth of their herbs and spices to God as a tithe, when they expect to be judged on their religious devotion, but then they do not practice justice and love. Jesus tells them there is nothing wrong with giving from their herbs and spices, but that they ought to do the other, greater things as well. In today's passage, Jesus promises that, and I quote, everything that is covered up will be revealed, and all that is secret will be made known to all, Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. And so then let's look at how Jesus interacts with people who do not conceal their sins, but instead acknowledge and confess them. When Zacchaeus promises to give generously to the poor and to make amends for ripping people off on their taxes, Jesus declares that salvation has come to him. And when Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who pray at the temple, he declares that the tax collector's confession was heard by God, but that the Pharisee's prayer of thanks for his own goodness and his own blessings was prayed to himself, indicating that God did not listen to that prayer. So, Jesus calls us to the discipline of confession, which leads us to the virtue of integrity. The shame that may come with confession is not the end of the road. Confession leads us through our shame to wholeness, to the loving, kind, and restoring presence of God. It is there that we can live, not as performers exerting ourselves to play a role on a stage, but instead to practice what Jesus calls us to do without bearing the burden of having it appear perfectly polished all the time. I can recall a time when I was a grade one teacher and we were working on the larger theme of belonging and acceptance through some drama play. Picture a circle of students sitting on the floor, and in the middle of the circle sat an older student, whom they knew, but we were pretending that we didn't know them at all. The person in the middle was dressed in a dark hoodie with a hood drawn over her head. 
I could hear a few of the students begin to make some comments that were based on assumptions. Slowly, a group began to form, and there was an increase in negative judgmental statements. At one point, I noticed Sarah, not her real name, quietly observing the student in the middle, with her head cocked to one side. And very quietly, Sarah said, I wonder if she's scared of us. I asked the class to stop talking, and had Sarah repeat her comment for all to hear. This was a brave and significant moment, as it shifted the entire conversation and direction of the play. Sarah was put in a very difficult situation of feeling the pressure of the group to conform. If she wanted to gain social status and power, she would have joined in the backlashing, but she didn't. She became vulnerable and allowed herself to empathize and reach out. After this powerful act of humility, the class learned that the student in the middle was feeling nervous about her place in the center and growing in fear of the comments that were being said of her. The group of students who were making the comments shifted their position and became open to listening and accepting. One act of humility opened the door for a movement of empathy. As adults, it can become difficult for us to choose humility over self-interest. Perhaps it is a way to protect our heart from facing the fears we may have. Fears of? Fears of looking foolish, of losing respect, of embarrassment, of disappointment and sadness. And yet the example we have is of the cross, where the most despicable things were said. And Christ's response was to understand and forgive, to offer grace, an ultimate act of humility. The risk in being vulnerable and humble is that we might be overlooked, attacked, or taken advantage of. As a church, something we might want to consider is the following. Are we fostering an environment where people can authentically be themselves and be accepted, where we can share differences and seek commonalities? Author and uh, social scientist Brené Brown teaches that in our culture, we associate vulnerability with emotions we want to avoid, such as fear, shame, and uncertainty. Yet too often we lose sight of the fact that vulnerability is also the birthplace of joy, belonging, creativity, authenticity, and love. When I was going through a divorce, I remember feeling nervous to come to church, wondering what comments I might be the recipient of. Would I still be accepted? Would I belong? The thing is, I had already done enough chipping away at my own self-worth that had I felt any kind of judgment from others, I am not sure I could have stayed. Thank the Lord there were many Sarahs here during that time in my life, those who reached out, offered hugs, words of hope, and loved my kids. Pastor Nathan Barnes of Voxet Alliance Church reminds us that we can create safe spaces and deep relationships where we can learn to extend honesty to one another. We can adopt an attitude of humility that says, I'm not yet where I want to be, this is where I am right now, but I'm also on a journey, and this is not where I intend to stay. By creating safe spaces, we offer one another the opportunity to be transformed by God's love. Because if we truly are accepted as we come, we have the freedom to be transformed into what we can become. It is much harder to be honest about where we are right now in terms of our challenges, painful experiences, and areas of growth if we don't feel a sense of belonging, of knowing that there are people that will walk things through with us. This is the power of being God's hands and feet to one another. Above all things, God is love, and love is transformative. In order to understand what Jesus is presenting to us in this passage, we need to keep the actual scene in mind. Jesus is presenting the call of discipleship, but he's doing this within a crowd. And as he does this, the content and the context of his teaching demonstrate that to be a follower of Jesus is to be called out from the crowd. Jesus is familiar with the seductive power of the crowd. He knows how it seems to offer a kind of safety and anonymity. So he says, the time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed, and all that is secret will be made known to all. The crowd cannot provide enough of a cloak. 
God knows all of what is going on. Jesus also knows how the crowd seems to offer a kind of security, as if to say, as long as you stay in line and move with us, we'll all look out for each other. We'll be safe and secure. Jesus already knows what a false promise this is and how quickly it caves in on itself. So he teaches about the one who actually does look out for each person. God. God cares for each bird within a flock. Each hair on top of a person's head. And sees each person within the crowd as being deeply valuable. The reason Jesus had this deep insight into the corrupt power of the crowd was because he had already looked deep into it, but then chosen something better. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. There were three off-ramps or three temptations presented to Jesus, and one of them was the crowds. In chapter 4, verse 5, we read, Then the devil took Jesus up and revealed him, revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. But Jesus replied, The scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. This passage seems to indicate that God's enemy has some kind of control over the crowds, or at least that they're often in cahoots. It also seems to indicate that the attraction of the crowd is one of the most tempting things on this planet. It has real power that sways us and pulls us in. But Jesus resisted the tempter and continued in the path of obedience to God's mission. So now all who would follow after this Jesus are invited on the same path. For centuries, Christianity came to be equated with the crowds. But this is no longer the direction that it's going. And it's going to put us to the test. Will we find our safety and our security within the crowd, or will we look to Christ? Will we look to God alone? We are not abandoned. We are still united as a community. But reading on in Luke chapter 12, we see that we are no longer a crowd swept up by a mob mentality but we are shaped to be a little flock, guided by God and given the kingdom. Luke 12, verse 10, Everyone who speaks the word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks evil things against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So I'll be honest, I had a very hard time reconciling this piece of scripture as we just read that we are worth more than many sparrows and I've come to know God as a God of love and a God of mercy. Here it seems to suggest that there may be something that we could do that would be unpardonable. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing. They do not know what they are doing, but forgive them. So there seems to be and understanding that Jesus knows that there are things that sometimes get in our way of knowing and doing better. But we get to choose if we are going to live as forgiven people. That is our choice, and that matters, and it makes a difference in our life. But there are obstacles that can get in our way. There are strongholds. One of these strongholds is shame. Have you ever made a poor choice, and rather than say, oops, that wasn't a great move, or I really made a mistake there, or some version of that. You say something like, I'm such an idiot, I'm so stupid, or another version of inadequacy. The subtle difference in naming the behavior rather than a personal characteristic is significant, in that one identifies a problematic decision 
and the other suggests that the whole person is the problem, and this is shame. Guilt and remorse occur when you realize you've made a mistake and you want to repair it. Shame is the sense that there is something wrong with who you are. Shame is a social experience. Try to recall a time when you felt shame, whether it was a reaction to judgment by others or your own. I can remember as a kid feeling a deep sense of shame as a result of some daily bullying, and I can very easily go back and feel that sense of, there must be something wrong with me. Maybe I'm dumb, maybe I'm ugly, I'm not sure, but it's something. You may also have felt intense feelings of discomfort, inadequacy, and unworthiness. Maybe you wanted to hide, and you most likely felt anger towards others or yourself. I'm going to unpack some of the psychology around shame, which is based on the work of Dr. Bruce Perry, Dr. Rick Hansen, and Dr. Bernard Golden. Some of the theoretical foundation of shame might be helpful as we determine ways of better understanding and supporting one another as a church family. Everyone experiences shame at some point, but not everyone is ruled by overwhelming shame. Some researchers suggest that shame is a result of repeatedly being told that we are bad. For example... A child spills the milk, the shame response would be to say, you are so, insert a name here, like clumsy. The child may begin to internalize this identity if it is ongoing. The teaching approach might include a version of, oh dear, looks like you spilled the milk, how did that happen? This gives the child an opportunity to reflect on what they could do differently to prevent that action in the future, rather than focusing their energy on preserving their dignity. Though single events can cause a shame response, it is often the result of more pervasive experiences, such as residential schools, where culture, language, and identity were taken away, and where an internalization of less than incurred. Abusive experiences, which can create a distorted view of relationships and love. Racism, sexism, discrimination. Traumatic events with little to no support following the event. Shame can be toxic when it becomes a lens through which we self-evaluate. When words like insecure, worthless, foolish, silly, inadequate, or simply less than become the descriptors we use for ourselves, it can close us off from accepting any form of positive regard, inhibit us from creating trusting bonds with others, and undermine our ability to be fully present with others and ourselves. We can become defensive, resentful, easily angered and disconnected, all in attempts to avoid this deeply painful feeling of shame. God is in the business of restoring, redeeming, and renewing. This is the good news. This is our hope. Shape is not, shame is not born out of love, so it is not from God. The cross has given us a way to experience renewal and the freedom to create our own narrative in life. Through prayer, worship, and within our church community, when it comes to shame, we can identify the disconnect between what's worth carrying and what's inappropriate to be burdened with day in and day out. We can practice self-compassion. We can seek support. We can recognize that the actions of others are not ours to own, put appropriate boundaries in place that support our health and well-being. We can identify the distinctions between shame and appropriate remorse. A note that at times... There will be a more complex road to healing that is worthy of deeper reflection and a larger village of mental health professionals. In his book, The Wounded Healer, Henry Nouwen reminds us that nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people. Whether physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually, the main question is not how can we hide our wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but how can we put our woundedness in the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame, it can become a source of healing. We can allow them to bring healing to others. If we accept the love and grace offered to us on the cross, then we can believe that we are loved, we are worthy, we are forgiven, and how we approach our relationships, our work, our free time will flow from this perspective. Being rooted in love and acceptance fosters healing from shame. Some years ago, I read a pair of metaphors for how Christians might experience nearness to God, or at least what they think is nearness to God. 
The first one is the experience of climbing a steep, rocky mountain. The believer clings to the rocks and carefully chooses each handhold and foothold and cautiously picks and pulls their way to the summit. And then what? Stays there on the top on a perilous perch, hoping that their balance will hold out and that a strong gust of wind will not send them crashing down the side of the mountain, tumbling out of control until their battered, bruised, and broken body comes to rest at the very bottom of the valley below. This is a view of holiness that is based on fear and effort. It's an image where any failure would be catastrophic, and where success is so narrowly defined that it constitutes a single point upon which one cannot do anything. I have lived in this view at, at least sometimes in my life. It did not fill me with joy or peace. Instead, my faithfulness to God's instructions, or at least my attempt to do so, filled me with fear. And I know that many of you have been there too. The second contrasting image of faithfulness and holiness is that of reaching a tableland or a plateau or an alpine meadow, some sort of a place where there is space to move and to roam, where a believer might explore and find a cluster of mountain flowers or a beautiful transparent pond, or look around and take in the view of all the surrounding mountains, their peaks and forests and clearings and breathe in the crisp air. There is no terror of falling here. It's a place where one could live and set up camp and stay a while. A stumble would hurt, but not send someone careening down into oblivion. Even if one's journey following Jesus did not remain there, but went down into the valley below, the experience of the highlands would replenish the spirit, the mind and the body, and the memory of it would offer hope while traveling through the shadows below. I have been learning to live in this place. Here, there is a place where I have heard God's deep and hearty laughter, and experienced the assurance that I am loved, and that the goodness that I experience in this place is a gift from God. It is a foretaste of the world to come the homeland that God is preparing for his children. It is a place where I can meet other people and not worry so much if they are not following all of the same trails that I do. Their paths might be good ones, but I am not doomed if I do not follow them myself. And if my path is a good one, others may be well, whether they do or do not make it over to precisely the place where I am. According to this vision, my obedience to God doesn't lead me to fear of failing. It leads me to working with joy and resting in peace, knowing that God's call is not to dance on the head of a pin, but to live in his promised land. Another stronghold space that Jesus addresses in this passage is our experience of worry. Today it seems our world is getting carried away by worry, but Jesus wants to show us a different way. Throughout Luke 12, Jesus tells his followers not to worry, but it doesn't take much imagination to hear our own voices from the crowd. Well, Jesus, isn't there a lot going on right now that we should really be worried about? In troubling times, it's important that we understand these different responses to worry and what exactly Jesus is inviting us to in the experience of worry. Jesus doesn't teach his followers to distract themselves from worry. He doesn't just teach them a catchy tune of don't worry, be happy for us to whistle our worries away. Jesus doesn't teach his followers to deny the realities that shape worry. There are real dangers that exist in the world. They are all around us and they do have real consequences in our lives. 
Sometimes these kind of uncertain circumstances can start tilting us towards a kind of health and wealth or prosperity message where we try to act as if we are immune or insulated from these realities, if we pray the right prayers, if we claim the right kind of faith. But this is not the way of Jesus. This is not what he teaches. And Jesus doesn't teach his followers to double down on worry. This is another response that we see sometimes in the midst of uncertain circumstances. A tilt towards a kind of turn or burn or doomsday message. This can be like doubling down on worry, as if to say, oh, you think it's bad now? It can and it will get so much worse. Unfortunately, it's in crisis that these messages seem to get stirred among us. So I want us to be prepared. The spiritual spin doctors are out there, and we're going to be hearing from them. But as far as I'm concerned, in this season, any kind of books or tracts or signs that convey this kind of prosperity or doomsday message are not serving God's purpose. I have no use for such materials. Actually, let me rephrase that. We are currently experiencing a shortage of toilet paper, so perhaps those kind of materials could, in fact, serve a purpose. In Luke 12, Jesus does bring up fear of God. In verse 5, he says, I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear God, who has the power to kill you and then throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one to fear. But let's keep in mind the entire scene here. When we read the lead-up with Luke 11, we see that this comment is pointed at the Pharisees, these people who were obsessed with surface image and who created religious systems in order to manipulate others and to cloud out the character of God. The warning of hell is a comment on the destination of all of that religious nonsense. And yes, it's also a comment on where true power lies, not within the schemes of the Pharisees, but within the hands of God. Yes, God can do anything. He has ultimate power. But beyond being convinced of the capability of God, Followers of Jesus are clear on the character of God. They are growing in knowing both the greatness and the goodness of God. Immediately after this warning, Jesus focuses in on the heart of God. That God's heart is not like the condemning crowds. It is filled with compassion, caring for little and vulnerable things like birds and flowers. That God's heart is like that of the perfect and loving Father who takes great happiness in giving us the fullness of his kingdom. It is this goodness of God that the way of Jesus is based in. The call to be a disciple of Jesus is not to distract from worry. It is not to deny worry. And it is certainly not to double down on worry, but it is to deal with our worries. And actually, it's to allow God to deal with them. He displaces our worries by flooding our hearts with his goodness. He brings us out of worry into a deeper trust that he will care for his creation always. So now as we've heard these reflections on Luke chapter 12 and on these inner experiences of shame, fear, and worry, we want to just take a minute to offer any final responses. So Theo, any final words you'd like to share with us? God's perfect love casts out all fear. We read this in the letter from one of the letters from the Apostle John. The more that we take this into us, down into our bones and into our hearts, we let it take root at the center of our hearts and our minds. The more we take this into ourselves, the more that we will be able to face our own flaws and shortcomings, 
as well as the dangers of the world in which we live. We will then know that we have one true judge, and that this judge does not desire our destruction, but rather for us to be purified and empowered to live well and fully and richly in God's presence and in the company of his other children. I guess something that I think of is that for me it comes down to identity. And identity without Christ for me means that I live a life of being unloved, unworthy, unforgiven, and my actions towards others then stem from that identity. But when I live a life that is um, based on my acceptance of that forgiveness and love, then the way I um, deal with life, the way I interact with my kids, the what, um, how I approach work, then helps me to, I guess, reach out to people in a way that is loving uh, rather than projecting um, shame, worry, and fear onto others. Then I am able to accept others as they are. Um, and the point of that is that if we can accept ourselves and others, then it's much easier to let God transform our lives. As we've seen this past week, life can change pretty fast. And it reveals some of what's truly going on, that we, like sparrows and wildflowers, are actually pretty fragile and pretty vulnerable. A lot more than we really like to let on. And so as we've shared these reflections on shame, fear, and worry, um, let's hold these in our minds and use them as helps to move towards each other, to care for one another, to love one another, to open up our own lives and share and experience God in our relationships. And so in this coming week and in the coming weeks, we want to be a community that engages each other in prayer, uh, especially paying attention to things like mental health and ways we can care for one another, as we already heard from Pastor Kim. But as we close the sermon, I just thought it would be appropriate to hear from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And this comes from the message. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. And so now, let's proclaim this, let's sing this final song together, receiving God's goodness and responding in trust.
So to each one of us, wherever we may be situated, we are a sent people. Jesus inviting us to come and join him this week to follow in his way. So we send, we are sent with these words that we read in Romans chapter 15. May the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.